2000 Northwest Christian Education Conference, Defending the Faith, Paul Pardee. That's a, a faithful few here. Yeah, sticking it out to the end. Appreciate you coming. This is uh, Defending the Faith, and it's actually, um, it's kind of the second part of two parts. But you don't really need to have been in the first one to, to pick up something, I think, of value in the second one. So I'll try to make it, I'll try to talk about what we did in the first one and summarize it so that you can pick up, uh, you know, be on the same page as we move forward. My name is Paul Party, and uh, let me just take a few minutes to tell you a little bit about me and where I'm coming from. I know some of you were in the first session, and I don't mean to bore you, but I want to bring uh, everyone up to speed here. Um, I was saved uh, as a young young boy, a seven-year-old, uh, and uh, I... Um, was saved along with my entire family. We came out of the Catholic Catholic Church, and we grew uh, tremendously as a, as a child. I grew tremendously as a child. And uh, when I hit high school, I uh, started thinking about my Christianity. And um, I realized uh, very quickly that if I really believed that Christianity was true, and I believed that Jesus Christ was alive and died for my sins, then the only reasonable thing to do would be to commit my entire life to him and to his work. I mean, it seemed reasonable, right? If Jesus really existed and Christianity were true, what else could I do? So I did that. I committed myself to, um, to study, to learning about Jesus, learning about Christianity. I studied a lot of theology, and uh, I, uh, I got involved in the church as much as I could as a youngster, uh, worked in the youth group, uh, you know, in leadership positions and whatnot. And then uh, when I hit uh, college, I, I went crazy for the Lord. I, I just absorbed myself in doing uh, Christian work. Um, I went to a, a regular Baptist school, which is a very fundamental school, a lot of opportunities for service. Uh, one of the things we would do is go out into um, to the street corners of the big cities on the East Coast, uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and we'd set up a whiteboard on the street corner and preach the gospel. And, of course, we'd get heckled and talk to all, all sorts of people, handing out tracts, and we get the track stuffed in our face and whatnot. It's very, very exciting. Um, an incident that stands out is uh, one, one uh, evening, uh, Halloween Eve, we were in downtown Manhattan at 7.30 in the evening uh, preaching the gospel. And talk about being terrified. <laughs> As a freshman in college, I was, uh, I was terrified. But it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, it, college was a, a time where I, I just grew tremendously and absorbed myself in serving Christ. But then in my senior year of college, something happened. I experienced a, a crisis event. I took, a, uh, I took a, a course in introduction to philosophy. And when, I hit the when they hit the religion section, this professor made it his job to dismantle all the classical arguments for God's existence. Uh, now, what I had done growing up is I read some of these arguments. I read about the ontological argument. I read about the evidence for the historicity of the, of the, the resurrection and all kinds of stuff. Um, actually... And so I'd, I'd read all these and I kind of stuck them in my, my back pocket. I was convinced that they were true and if I ever needed them, I'd pull them out. But I really didn't think about them. I didn't absorb them. And what this uh, professor had done was to demonstrate that they didn't work, that the ontological argument essentially fails uh, as a deductive proof and that there were critical uh, views of the historicity of the New Testament and uh, the historicity of the resurrection. And this sent my faith into a tailspin. Uh, I experienced uh, severe doubt, and I scrambled to try to recover. I had grown up, remember, believing that all this stuff was, was true, and, uh, and this was my worldview. And my world, the foundation of my worldview was essentially crumbling. And I did whatever I could to figure out what was going on, and it was one of the most traumatic times of my life. 
But for two or three years, I spent uh, just study, just reading, reading anything I can get my hands on. I read atheists, I read theists, uh, I read some comparative religion stuff. And as I, as I did study, as I did my reading, I kept coming back to one discipline that seemed to, have, seemed to deal with the questions better than any other, and that was the discipline of philosophy. So in one sense, philosophy uh, crumbled my faith, but it was also philosophy that actually ended up bringing me back to a solid uh, faith in, in Christianity. And I came to realize that a little philosophy makes one an atheist. A lot of philosophy makes one a theist. That's kind of been uh, my experience anyway. Uh, I'm sorry, this one right here. Just, why don't you keep those in the back, and if someone walks in, we can hand those up. So um, this, uh, this discipline of philosophy, I spent the next few years uh, reading and studying philosophy, and then I pursued uh, graduate studies in philosophy, and uh, have been doing that work ever since. And uh, I, I think uh, I, I love the discipline, and I'm going to share, hopefully share some things with you today uh, out of my study and out of my reflection that I hope will, will help you. Okay. Now, in the first session, we talked about apologetics, and this is a, uh, a seminar on defending the faith. And so what I want to do is give you some background on what that means and what we talked about in the first session. I'll try to summarize that quickly and then move into what we're going to do in this, in this session. So we're talking about uh, defense of the faith, and I try to define a defense of the faith uh, from uh, an approach I call the integrated worldview approach, the integrated worldview approach to defending the faith. Okay? And what I mean by that is that our defense of the faith is not a task of studying arguments or, or just doing a study of argumentation so that when an atheist asks us a question, we can whip these arguments out and kind of hit them between the eyes and hopefully it'll fall down. That's not what apologetics is all about. It's not about reading Josh McDowell and getting a bunch of arguments so that you feel comfortable about your worldview. Okay? It's not about um, uh, having the ontological argument as a statement you can throw at an atheist and hopefully he won't ask you any more questions. Okay, that's not what defending the faith is all about. What I argued in the first session is that defending the faith is about having a ground of knowledge, a worldview that we spend a lot of time studying. We study philosophy, we study theology, we study, uh, we study uh, literature that talks about who God is, we study literature that talks about who we are, we study literature that talks about how we relate to God, we read some of the classical uh, defenses of Christianity, uh, people, people like uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and, and others even going back as far as uh, Aristotle and reading his view of what the soul is. And we build this worldview of Christian ideas, and then out of that worldview, out of that study, comes our defense of the faith. So we don't have just a set of arguments that we know, but we have a, we have a broad understanding of what we actually believe and what we actually know about God. So that we can, if someone comes up to you and says, I don't think that, I'm a naturalist, and I think that the material world is all there is. I don't think there's even the possibility that something other than the material world exists. And so the idea of a soul, for instance, is, is not possible. Well, we can come to that person and say, let's talk about that for a second. I actually think a soul can exist, and here's why. So now you introduce the idea that there can be something called a, a transcendent reality that exists outside of the material world. Okay? So your defense of the faith is actually a defense of the Christian worldview. And it's not merely spouting arguments that you really don't have an idea of what they mean. I mean, most of us probably have a hard time spe spelling teleological, let alone uh, knowing what the teleological argument is all about. But the goal of an integrated worldview approach to apologetics is to have, it emphasizes a life of study and to have a ground of knowledge from which we defend the faith. Okay? Now, I spent the first session talking about that, and I'm, I apologize for the quick overview. Uh, if you're interested in, in that discussion, um, you can pick up, I think you can pick up the tape that will help you 
fill in the gaps in, in, this, uh, in this idea. All right? I concluded last time by arguing that the Western church, the main problem with our defending the, the faith is that the Western church largely is anti-intellectual and actually emphasizes the experiential, which means it emphasizes the idea that I have a relationship with God or a relationship with other church people at the expense of emphasizing having a knowledge of God and having a knowledge of ourselves and having a knowledge of who God is. Okay, so the Western church has abandoned having this knowledge at the expense of, or abandoned this, having this knowledge and, and in its place has put this experiential idea. We're only having my beliefs, having an experience and, and telling about an experience is what is important. All right? So if I went to the average church person, the average person in the pew, and I said, why do you come to church? What is important about your church attendance? Why are you here? Why do you get involved in Christian service? Their answer would be, because I've had an experience with Jesus Christ. And again, that's really important, isn't it? I mean, amen? All right? If you don't have an experience of Jesus Christ, something's missing. But what we find is that's all people say. I've had this experience of Jesus Christ. Or um, someone invited me to church, and they became my best friend, and, and I just really like having the fellowship with this person, and so I come to church to be a part of this community. That's what we typically find. But we, if we ask the average churchgoer to, say, give an idea of, um, ask, ask them to explain the soul. What does it mean to have a soul, an immaterial self that's not your body? What does that mean? Or um, can you explain what the incarnation is? Not in a vast uh, theological exposition, but just what is the incarnation? What does it mean for God to become man? Or give me the main arguments of the book of Romans. How many average churchgoers can do that these days? Not very many, right? And I argued that's a problem. And that's where we find the, uh, the 20th century evangelical church, at least in the West. This may not be true in other parts of the world. In fact, I think there are some th good things happening in other areas of the world. But in the West, this is where the church is at. Okay? So we've abandoned the, uh, the knowledge of God for the experience of God. And in that sense, our defense of the faith has fallen apart. All right? So I said then that... Um, I gave three statements that I believe were important. I'm going to just give you two of those quickly and then we'll move on. One is that um, knowledge is the ground of responsible action. And what I mean by that is that when we want people to listen to what we're saying, uh, people will tend to go to those folks that have a knowledge about something. I use the example of having my car being repaired. I wouldn't go to my wife to have my car repaired because my wife doesn't have the relevant knowledge. But I will go to my mechanic, even though my wife loves me more and I have a relationship with my wife. My mechanic really doesn't care about me as a person, but he has the relevant knowledge, right? So if we expect a world that is antagonistic towards Christianity to find out things about God, that world is going to go to the people that they think has the, re has the relevant knowledge about God. And if we believe our Christianity is true, we need to have that relevant knowledge. So when someone asks us about how there could be a transcendent being, we could give them an answer. All right? And then the other thing I said was that reason is the means by which we transfer knowledge. Okay? Reason is the means by which we transfer knowledge. And again, quickly, let me give you an example. Um, I don't think that I have to have reasons in order to believe something, but I, need, I may need to give someone else reasons for why they should believe what I believe. All right? So if I, I use the example of uh, seeing uh, like that red shirt in the back or that orange shirt. What's your name, sir? Ralph? Okay, so suppose I said that I see Ralph's uh, 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 orange, uh, orange vest there. Okay, now I believe in Ralph's orange vest, and I believe I actually know that Ralph is wearing an orange vest. But I can't give any arguments for why that's true. I just believe it, okay? 
And a lot of people believe in God that way. They couldn't really articulate why, but they actually have this, this belief, and it's true. It's actually true. But suppose you were in the next room, and I wanted you to believe that Ralph was wearing a red or an orange uh, vest. I would probably have to give you reasons and arguments for why that's true, because you're not having that experience. Okay, does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay. So I think that reasons and argumentation is the means by which we transfer knowledge, even though it may not be the means by which we gain knowledge. Okay, and again, I'm going to defer to the first seminar because I don't want to rehearse everything that I said in that one. Uh, there are some people here that were there, and I don't want to bore you too much. Okay, so those are the grounds uh, by which we, uh, we base our defense of the faith. Now, what I want to do in this, in this session is talk about how we can recover, uh, recover our authority in the culture and come back from the state of being marginalized. Okay, I think the church no longer has authority in the culture because we've abdicated our authority due to our lack of, of knowledge. Okay, we no longer have a voice. All right? Um, I gave the example of the Littleton crisis, and the church really didn't have a part to play, did it? When people wanted to try to figure out what was happening, why the boys did what they did, they went to the scientists, didn't they? They went to the psychologists, the brain scientists, the neurophysiologists. What was going on in the brain chemistry of these boys? What was their home life like? What, what did the minister do in that situation? What's that? They were quiet or... Why did people go to the minister during that? For comfort, right? The minister gave them personal comfort. But he had nothing to say about... Uh, nothing authoritative to say about why the situation occurred, what we can do to stop it in the future, right? Nobody went to the minister for those answers because the church has lost its authority in the culture. We have nothing to say regarding why things are the way they are and how we can improve them. So all we can do is provide personal comfort for people. So I want to talk about how the church can recover the authority that we lost. Okay, that's what we're going to do in this session. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to spit out my gum. Excuse me. Okay. But someone nice and loudly read 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 17. If you have it. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you and give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Thanks. Okay, Peter was writing to a group of people and he was giving them some pastoral advice, right? Now let me give you some background about what was happening and the situation to, Peter, to which Peter was writing. Uh, the Christians were being persecuted at this time. Now, as you know, the, the Christians were per persecuted severely at a certain point in history. They were being burned at the stake. They were being driven from their homes, on and on and on. You, you all know the story. Okay? This, the situation to, to which Peter was writing was happening just before the severe persecution. Now, the Christians were being persecuted, but they weren't being persecuted at the governmental level. They were being persecuted at the local level. So they were being ostracized from social situations. Uh, they were not allowed to have a voice in the discussions that were occurring uh, in local policy. Even though the, the imperial government hadn't gotten involved yet, that was coming later. So the imperial government got involved in 65 AD. That's when Nero uh, started persecuting the Christians severely. 
And this was happening around 63. Peter was writing around 63 AD to, to his audience. And he's, he's trying to prepare them not only for what was coming, for, but for what they were experiencing at the time. And they were being marginalized. They were experiencing a marginalization. Christianity was being, trying to be suppressed, but it was happening at the local level. Now, most of us, I think, would agree that that's happening today, isn't it? Christianity is being marginalized. We're losing our voice. Uh, if we try to get up in a, in a social situation at a, at a meeting, for instance, for the local school board, and you try to point to the, the scriptures as an authority for how we ought to act and live and how we ought to treat our children, you pretty much are laughed out of the discussion before you even say the first word. Right? If you said the Bible says, that means nothing anymore. It means absolutely nothing. So you have to come up with other ways of, of articulating your view. And I think that's what was happening here. The situation to which Peter was writing was very similar. So the advice that he gives is going to be very relevant for us, I think, as well. So we want to look at this just very briefly at some of the things that, that, that Peter says. Okay? First of all, in verse 13, he tries to encourage them. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Don't stop being zealous. Don't worry about the harm that will come, because who can harm you if you're proving zealous for Christ's sake? Right? So he tries to give them encouragement. He says, but even if you should suffer, even if the suffering does come, you still are blessed, and you shouldn't fear. And that's the advice I want to give you today. We are under attack, but we should continue to be zealous, and we shouldn't fear. All right? And here's why. First of all, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means you need to know who your master is. Amen? Right? Christ has got to be Lord in your hearts. That's the first place to start. If Christ isn't up front, right here in front of us, then uh, we're going to lose the battle. But Peter reminds us that Christ is Lord. So that's one reason we shouldn't fear. We shouldn't fear their intimidation. The next, now look who follows right on the heels of this, folks. This is, this is incredible. Right on the heels of sanctifying Christ as Lord, he says, Always be ready to make a defense. So Christ goes before us, but we still need to do our part. We still need to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us, right? He says, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in, within you. So, yes, Christ is Lord and, and Christ is in control, but we still have the responsibility to be ready and to make a defense. And then finally, he says, make sure your defense is done with gentleness and reverence. Have you ever tried to argue with someone that's mean-spirited and heavy-handed and tries to win an argument by pounding the pulpit or being mean-spirited? You don't get anywhere, right? So he reminds us that our defense, when we defend the faith, it needs to be done with gentleness and reverence. And I think that's, a good, that's really good advice. Then finally, he says, make sure that your moral life is, is pure. So if you want to be an apologist, if you want to be a defender of the faith, make sure that you keep a good conscience so that if you're going to be reviled, it's not for immorality, it's going to be reviled for, for holding to the cause of Christ. I mean, if, you know, we, we, we're going to be reviled, but make sure it's for the right reasons. That's what he says in verse 16. So make sure your moral life is pure. So this is what we need to do. Now, what we're going to do in, in focus in, in this seminar and the rest of our time is the second phrase, be ready to make a defense. What can we as a church do to be ready? How can we make our churches stronger so that as we approach the culture, we have something to say and we're not uh, set aside? All right. First of all, we need to figure out what, what our job is. What are, we, what are we called to do as a church, as a body of Christ, as believers? What is our job? What is our function? What is our role? Well, I believe our first role is to preach the gospel. That's why we're here. Our first role is to preach the gospel. We need to be um, telling people about the truth of Jesus Christ. All right? that's, that's the first uh, function that we as a church ought to have. 
uh, the Great Commission, go out and preach the gospel, right? That's, that's our, our function. I think the section, second function, though, equally as important, is that we are to be salt and light to the culture. Salt and light to the culture. Now, what does salt do when it's applied to something? Heal. Okay, it's a healer. That's a good, good insight. Great. Preserves. What else? But more fundamentally, if you apply salt to something, it, it flavors, right? It changes it, right? It changes the thing to which it's applied. Do you think the church is really affecting a lot of change these days? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like we're really functioning as much as, as, as salt these days. We're not changing the world around us. But we're called to do that. The, the next uh, metaphor is even more powerful. We're, we're to be a light to the world, to light in a dark place. That means it goes from one extreme to the other. When you turn a light on, it goes from complete darkness to, to being illuminated. And the church is called to do that. What a powerful metaphor. We are to change those, uh, we're, we're to change the world around us. We're to be salt and light to the world. And it doesn't say we're to be salt and light to each other. I mean, I think that's important. It's part of our calling. But we're to be salt and light to the world, right? So we need to be going outside of our doors and affecting change in the world around us. All right, so that's... Uh, that's what our calling is. We're to preach the gospel and we're to affect uh, change around us. I, I, a good I, uh, metaphor that I like to use is we're to be a cultural thermostat. What does a thermostat do as opposed to a thermometer? It, it regulates, right? It regulates the temperature as opposed to just reading the temperature of the room. We're to be cultural thermostats. We're to regulate the temp- temperature and to, um, to change the things that we're, we're dealing with. Now, why is this important? Why is salt and light important to the primary purpose of preaching the gospel? Well, I think that these days, because of the state of our culture, and I can't really address that too deeply right now, I can refer you to some reading that will help here, but I think our culture is such that we can't even uh, get our foot in the door to talk about the gospel anymore because of some um, fundamental philosophical ideologies that our culture holds to. All right, So I think we need to do what Francis Schaeffer called uh, pre-evangelism. We have to uh, salt, salt in the culture and lighten the culture before the gospel can even be preached. We, most of us know uh, during the Cold War what the situation was like in Russia. Was the gospel able to be preached freely? Did it make any sense to the people that were listening to it? We had to go underground. Why? Because it was against the law. The culture wouldn't even allow the gospel to be preached. So what had to happen was people had to go in and... and change the fundamental thinking of the culture first before the gospel could be propagated. So I think part of being salt and light is that we change the fundamental ideas of the thinking of the culture in a philosophical arena before we can do our evangelical work. All right, some, some examples of this. Uh, there, are, there are Christians that are trying to get their PhDs who are having their dissertations rejected in the university because of some of the views they're taking in the areas of, say, science, creation science. I know uh, of one gentleman whose, whose dissertation is on creationism, and it's, it doesn't bring the Bible at all. It, it has nothing to do with the scriptures. It's a thoroughly scientific paper, dissertation, and he's having problems getting his dissertation to go through because of the stance he's taking on creationism. Now, that's a very mild example, but it's happening more and more and more. So Christianity and Christian ideas are being rejected outright. Now listen to this statement by, by Machen, uh, J. Gresham Machen. If you study Greek, you probably know the name. He was the uh, president of Westminster Theological Seminary. This is a great quote. He says this, False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. 
We may preach with the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there. If we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which by the restless force of logic prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is to destroy the obstacle at its root. Boy, I say amen to that. That is, that is very, very true. And this is what I think it means to be salt to the culture. We change the fundamental ideas, and from that we are able to present the gospel. All right? So the, pro- the problem is that the church is no longer functioning in this way. We've lost our voice. Now what I want to do in the next few minutes is give you some overview of why this happened. Those of you who are in the first seminar uh, were asking about this. Let me, let me tell you historically what happened. Why the church no longer is in a position of cultural authority. And we, really we lost it, right? There was a time when the church was very powerful. In fact, too powerful, some would argue. In the, in the Middle Ages, the church did some things that extended beyond what it should have done. And, we, and you know, most of us know about those black spots in our history. But for the most part, um, even if an atheist disagreed with us, we still had a voice to present the idea. But that's no longer true, and I want to talk about why we lost that authority. All right? First of all, the state of our culture right now is what I want to call... Yes, I'm sorry. I, I just uh, want to get clearly sure. what you're talking about. Are you talking about, are you talking about the church losing its influence? Are you talking about a socio-political role, or are you talking about personal one-on-one evangelism? Are you talking about communication from the pulpit down? Sure. That's a that's a good question. Sure. Right. That's a good question. Um, certainly, the relationship between, for instance, uh, the political aspect of who we are as a people uh, flows out of who we are as individuals. So, my ability to relate to you on an individual basis may be reflected in politics, uh, and it flows from that. So, when I say that we've lost our influence, I'm not talking about necessarily political influence. I'm talking about um, ideological influence. Okay? I'm talking about the ideas of Christianity, the worldview, the Christian worldview, no longer is a viable player. Okay? So, so, for instance, if I were to walk into a, an average discussion about some, let's just say any idea relating to, uh, to uh, metaphysics or to science or physics or anything like that, uh, generally the thinking in that room would be naturalistic. Okay? If you walked into a university or a classroom, even at the grade school or high school level, uh, Darwin was right, right? Evolution is true. Um, there's nothing beyond the physical world. There's no, no such thing as a, as a transcendent reality. You don't have a soul. You think with your brain, right? Isn't that true? Okay. So these are the, the ideas that um, are being propagated are non-Christian or anti-Christian ideas because the Christian holds that you have a soul. I actually believe that I have a soul that is immaterial. That is, I don't think with my brain. I think with my mind, which is different than my brain. Right? I believe in a transcendent God that is non-material. Okay? So the very ideas that Christianity is founded upon are not allowed to be talked about. So it's an ideological situation. Now that shows itself in politics, but it's a lot more fundamentally different than politics. Okay? And politics is important. I mean, I think we need to have a voice there. But I'm talking about the ideas of Christianity are being squelched at that level. Does that help a little bit? And I think it helps. Uh, it shows in the individual relationships too. Yes, sir? I was just going to help you with one regard. Even though most school districts don't allow... Uh, creationism, or they do, but they don't teach it. New Mexico recently outlawed. Is that right? Yes. The state of New Mexico is the only state in the United States that will not, I'm talking about the Board of Education, will not allow creationism to be even included in the 
Sure. The and why did that happen? That just happened in October. And right. Why did that happen? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of our fault. Why does that something Right, right. Because creationism isn't even isn't even possibly true. See what I just said now? You understand what I'm saying? Christianity or uh, creationism isn't even possibly true. It's like teaching flat earth now. If you were to walk in and say the earth is flat and I have some arguments for it, you wouldn't even be allowed in the discussion because it's it's ridiculous. Now Christianity has been regulated to that type of thinking. It's myth, pure myth has no foundation in scientific discussions. And most of us don't believe that. All right? So, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the comments there. I think, I think you guys are exactly right. There is hope, though, because there's another place that decided that they weren't going to rule on that. They were going to allow it to be held at the local yeah. level. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I think there are, I think there are pockets. I, I should have said something at the very beginning. I'm going to be painting in very broad strokes for the seminar, okay, and it's always dangerous because we can point to individual instances where it either is or is not true. But I think generally speaking, I think we're looking at a certain situation. I think that's pretty fair to say, but I appreciate the comment because there's balance there. We do see some good things happening in pockets of the country. Okay, so what I was going to say then is that the culture, the reason why we find ourselves in the situation we do is that the culture is utterly secular. We are living in a secular uh, culture. Now, what does it mean to be secular? Who can give me a definition of secular? One who believes that there is essentially a naturalist, that there is nothing beyond the natural order. Okay, that's a good definition. A secular person is someone who believes in the natural world. Um, let me introduce one other idea. How would you contrast secular with pagan? Secular with pagan. Pagan. Go ahead, no, go ahead. I would say pagan. Pagan has a religious belief, whereas secular is more of an our religion.